It's good to see you all here this morning. Glad you're here. We're in a series called The Good Book, and today we're in Luke chapter 8. If you're a guest with us today, join us, will you please, if you have your Bible or if you've got uh, your tablet or your phone or whatever is handiest for you. Why? Take it now and turn to Luke chapter 8. Bannister Tyrleton was a despicable man. He was victorious in battle, but his tactics were inexcusable. Known in the U.S. as Bloody Ban or Ban the Butcher, he extended no mercy to the foe. At the Battle of Waxhalls, when soldiers were trying to surrender to him, he ordered his men to just keep on killing. Few survived to report that massacre. Not long afterwards, when the Americans, under the command of Brigadier General Daniel Morgan, were leading and heading north, his meager troops, to rejoin the main force, Tarleton saw another opportunity to show his strength. After all, he had yet to lose any battle, and so the chase was on. As General Morgan and his troops neared the Broad River, which was at flood stage at that point in time, he feared being trapped with no means of escape, so he decided to stand and fight in a large pasture area known as Calpins. He strategically sent his troops in such a way that the overconfident Tarleton misjudged the situation. Tarleton's Green Legion, as they were called, attacked. And when it appeared that once again Morgan's troops were retreating, he pressed the attack further. And that's when suddenly, unexpectedly, Morgan's troops turned and at short range fired upon Tarleton's Green Legion. The attack was unexpected. It threw the Green Legion into sheer panic and confusion and turned the tide of battle. The date was January the 17th, 1781. The place was South Carolina. It was our war for independence. The battle lasted only an hour. Tarleton himself escaped. But when all was said and done, the rest of the Green Legion had been captured by the colonial army. The Green Legion was the elite of Cornwallis's British forces. That victory at Calpin set the stage for the ensuing victory at Yorktown. And the battle at Yorktown where Cornwallis surrendered secured for America our national freedom. Many, if not most, doubted that our meager continental forces were strong enough to go up against the most powerful military in the world at that time. But strength, strength is measured in multiple ways. Spiritually speaking, folks, we struggle daily with enemies that are in hot pursuit Work and family problems, stress and anxiety, overpowering temptation, and many in our culture are asking the same question about Jesus. Is he strong enough? Is he strong enough to handle my weakest moments? Is he powerful enough to overcome the despicable enemies that seem to ravage my life? Are his words durable enough to get me through a lifetime of skirmishes and battles? Does the New Testament even give us an answer or clue as to the strength of Jesus? Well, the answer to that one is yes. It does give us a clue. He gives us a direct answer. And Luke responds 
in chapter 8 with a cluster of stories that happen within a 24-hour period that, in my mind, conclusively answer the question, is Jesus strong enough? Our story opens with these words in Luke 8, 22. <clears throat> One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. Sounds like an ordinary day, doesn't it? They were up and going and, and things were looking good. Hey, this looks like a beautiful day. Let's go to the other side of the lake. But before the next several hours were over, it would become one of the most extraordinary days in the lives of Jesus and his disciples. Life is like that. We, we, we wake up and we think that today is going to be like yesterday and the day before and the day before. It's just another ordinary day. But we never know what's going to happen on that day and what that day will bring. We get up with anticipation, but in a heartbeat, that anticipation can change. Ask your neighbor how his unexpected emergency surgery changes his daily existence. Ask your coworker who is suddenly cleaning out her desk about her confidence in the future now that she has no job. Ask the grieving parents whose daughters were killed by the cowardly suicide bomber in Manchester, England, if their lives will ever be the same again. One day, a simple trip to the other side became a life-changing journey where the power of Jesus was on clear display. Here's the first picture. The disciples are out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, this large lake, if you please. It wasn't a sea, but it was a large lake. And so they're out in the middle of the lake, and Jesus takes a nap in the stern of the boat. I'm encouraged by the fact that Jesus himself took naps. <laughs> Never during sermons, mind you, but he did take naps. This one, however, appears to be a Category 5 storm that squalls upon the lake. This also happened on the Sea of Galilee, that storms could erupt without a minute's notice. But these guys were hardened fishermen. They knew the lake like the back of their hand. This one had them scared. That's why I say it's a, it's a Category 5, not a Category 2 maybe like the normal ones. And, and Jesus sleeps through it. And I think they're perturbed at Jesus for being able to sleep through it. Maybe they're a bit resentful that he isn't up helping Baal to get the water out of the boat. So they finally wake him, and Jesus is puzzled at their lack of faith. Did they not believe that he was the Son of God in their midst? Verse 24 says, he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. And suddenly the disciples' unhealthy fear of the storm was replaced by a healthy fear of the one who was strong enough to overpower the winds and the waves. Is Jesus strong enough this morning? Yes, he's stronger than the very laws of nature. Picture two. They're still damp from the storm when they reach the other side, and they're a bit confused. And what's more, they land on the other side, which is Gentile territory, which is sort of creepy to these guys who didn't want to have anything to do with Gentiles. And the part where they land is a cemetery. That just ups the creepy level, all right? So it's even creepier now that they're in this area of limestone caves and tombs and crevices. And out of those limestone crevices start to come mournful sounds of groans and deep pains. <laughs> this is way off the creepy chart now. I'd have passed out on the spot, I'm here to tell you. 
Some of them may have too. The Bible doesn't say. I, I just see them, though, huddled together around Jesus, shuffling along, afraid to take the very next step. And then suddenly, without warning, this maniac bursts out of the caves and comes running at them, shouting at the top of his, uh, of his voice, naked with not a stitch of clothing on him. You talk about frightening. This moment, these guys would have just absolutely have been scared beyond description. The man, the Bible says, is demon-possessed. I cannot explain demon possession to you. But I believe it's real. I've spoken with too many credible scholars and too many people who have served on the mission field to see things that I've never seen, but who have been eyewitnesses to things that can only be explained as the force of evil at work. Now, I realize it's easy to have doubts about things like this. I mean, when something defies our sense of logic or contradicts what we can explain scientifically or runs contrary to our five senses, we're undoubtedly skeptical. I get that. And remember, Satan is subtle. Well, he's not bound to use the same methods from culture to culture. He probably knows that he needs to be a little bit more subtle in our presence in order to keep us under his thumb. But if you think this morning that demonic forces are the fodder of fairy tales, let me ask you, how do you explain evil? Which is worse, the man whose demonic possession causes him to break the chains that bind him or the man whose demoralizing obsession causes him to spend hours on pornographic websites and is chained to an addiction that he cannot break? Which is worse, a man who lives in the shadows and calls at home or a man who secretly meets another man's wife in the shadows and destroys both homes in the process. We think we're too sophisticated to believe in a demonic force, but I wonder if we aren't worse off because of our sophistication. And if not for the influence of Satan, how do we explain the atrocious deed in Manchester, England this week? Or the destruction and the torture of Coptic churches and Christians in Egypt? Or the excruciatingly painful practice of splashing acid in the face of a young woman simply because she has turned down a wedding marriage proposal? Much of what we experience in this world is a spiritual battle. The forces of evil and wickedness will stop at nothing to win. We need to be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world who are putting their lives on the line simply because they believe in Jesus Christ. Because if we don't pray for them now, who will pray for us when our lives are on the line for simply believing in Jesus? The demon-possessed man drops to his knees in front of Jesus and shouts at the top of his lungs, Jesus, Son of the Most High, in God's name, do not torture us. It's not the voice of the man. It's the voice of the demon whose name is Legion because as his hellish voice explains, they are many. Jesus is about ready to cast them out. And they beg him, don't cast us into the abyss, into the pit where someday they will spend eternity. Instead, cast us into the pigs over here. And so Jesus granted their request. They enter into this herd of pigs. The pigs go down off the cliff into the sea. And suddenly, 
the wild man who was so tortured by these demons is sitting calmly in his right mind, now dressed at the feet of Jesus. So I ask you again, is Jesus strong enough? Oh, yeah. He is far stronger than all the forces of evil. Picture three. Back on the Judean side, the crowd is waiting for Jesus to return. It's sort of like a welcome home celebration because they are anxious to have him back in their midst because the crowd at this point in time dearly loves Jesus. But into this welcome home party comes a desperate man. Verse 41 says, Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his home because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Jesus, being filled with compassion, agrees to go with him. And, of course, the crowd (laughs) makes their way there, too. And it is that point where story three enters the picture. There's an interruption. Verse 42 of our text continues. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. Jesus is trying to get to the home of Jairus, but things are moving slowly. And an unnamed woman comes up to him in the crowd to find healing. She has suffered with a blood hemorrhage for the last 12 years of her life. She has spent everything she, can, she has on some kind of a medical cure to no end. She was banned from public participation. Her social life was over. She would not have been able to have attended worship because the disease would have made her ceremonially unclean. She was the untouchable. In their midst. She was the one in the crowd who didn't want any recognition because if the crowd knew who she was, they'd be angry. And so she just determined that quietly, slowly, she would slip up. And and if all she could do was just touch the hem of the robe of Jesus, she'd be healed. And she made it through the crowd. She touched his robe, and instantly, the Bible says, her body was healed. Luke, verse. 45, who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, come on, master. The people are crowding around and pressing against you. In other words, you know, Jesus, are you really asking the question who to everybody in this crowd has touched you? But Jesus said, no, 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 not not that way, Peter. Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. What an incredible expression of faith on the part of the woman. What kind and exhorting words of restoration and peace from the lips of Jesus. And you say, is Jesus strong enough? Oh, yes. Yes, he's strong enough. He's greater than the power of all the sickness and suffering in this world. Picture four, back to Jairus, who was most certainly distressed at this delay. The crowd is preventing Jesus from going. Now this woman has interrupted him. His daughter's life hangs by a thread. Please hurry, Jesus. There's not much time. This woman will be here when you get back. My daughter may not be there when we get home. His desperation must have been obvious and understandable. 
Most of the people would recognize him as a ruler of the synagogue, a prestigious position to say the least. He was in charge of all the worship that happened at the synagogue as well as the facilities themselves. He would have been viewed as a man of influence and means in that day and culture. But on this day, he doesn't come as the ruler of the synagogue. He comes as a burdened father, a desperate father. It's interesting that he comes himself Usually a man of this position would have sent somebody else, a hired hand, a servant, somebody with the message to Jesus. And then stop and think about this too. His daughter was dying. You know, who wants to leave the bedside of their daughter knowing that he might not make it back in time to even see her alive? But he comes. He comes and he comes alone. Maybe he was the only one in the household who believed, but there was no doubt concerning his faith. And perhaps that's why he came, so that Jesus might see that faith was deep in his heart. Tragedy is stamped all over this event. His daughter was an only child. Luke tells us that she was about 12. Calls her a child of about 12. According to Jewish tradition at the day and time, at the age of 12 and one day, a young girl became a woman. She's near 12. She was nearing that point. Maybe she was already engaged. Maybe she was about to be engaged. I tell you, there is no deeper pain than to stand helplessly by and watch your child suffer and face death. It is the only pain in this world that can give you a glimpse into the heart of God as he watched his own son die that we might have life. Verse 49, while Jesus was still speaking, someone from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, came. Your daughter's dead, he said. Don't, don't, don't bother the teacher anymore. The breath goes out of him. The wind goes out of his sails. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she'll be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand, and he said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. And then Jesus gave them told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. They'd soon find out. Imagine what a blow it must have been to Jairus and to his faith when they told him his daughter was dead. I, I, I imagine he was thinking, if this woman had not interrupted this, we might have made it in time. Folks, don't judge life's circumstances too soon. When you say, oh, if God had only responded when I prayed, this wouldn't have happened. What happens may be God's greatest opportunity in your life. Sometimes we cannot see the end of the story. We never can see the end of the story. So don't judge things too quickly. Jesus tells him, don't lose heart, keep on believing. Jesus gives the man hope when everything seemed hopeless. She's not dead, but asleep. Well, the body was dead, but her spirit was still very much alive. It's a word of power, this word here. Little girl, get up. Lazarus, come forth. Power in those words. And then to remind them, 
She's hungry after this. Give her something to eat. They were astonished and rightly so. Is Jesus strong enough? Oh, yeah. He's stronger than the power of our mortal enemy, death. You know, in our culture, we value strength. Which paper towel is stronger when wet? Which detergent is stronger to attack the dirty spots? Which antibiotic is stronger in fighting the most powerful infection? Which investment is stronger over the long haul to, to weather the ups and downs of the market? We value strength. Every little child knows what it means to be strong. You ask a child, are you strong? And they gnarl up their face and they grit their teeth and they raise their arm and we press on those little bicep muscles and ooh and all and they're so proud because every child wants to be strong. At the circus, one of the best calling cards was the strong man. Everybody wanted to see what the strong man can do. You see, we value strength. On the football field, you want strength in both the defensive and offensive lines because a football team that's not strong is not victorious. We value strength. <laughs> when Elsie and I moved here back in 1981, there were group of folks from the church who volunteered to help us unload the moving van and we're moving into the house and in the, in the back of the U-Haul I'm kind of pushing things forward. One of the men that volunteered that day was a, a guy by the name of Art Keitzer from the, from the church here and I could tell by just looking at Art that he was a reasonably strong man. But when we came to unloading the appliances and Art looked up at me in the back of the van and said, Hand me that freezer. <laughs> Hand me that freezer? <laughs> me? Hand you that freezer? I worked the freezer to the back of the moving van. Art took it from there. That was the day that I knew, whatever the circumstance, I want to be on Art's side. <laughs> because we value strength. Jesus was a strong man, fitting for a carpenter. He would have been a strong man from his carpenter work. What's more, Jesus was nearly lashed to death in his scourging. Many people died before they even got to the cross because of the scourging. But then he bore this massive cross beam on his way to the place of execution. If somebody ever tells you that Jesus was a weak man, will you please set the record straight? There was nothing weak about him. But it's not his physical strength that draws us to him. It is the strength of other means. For, for instance, let's not forget the reason behind these miracles. You say, oh, that's easy. Jesus had compassion. He was moved with compassion to help people. Yes, he was. And in every one of these situations and circumstances, his compassion was visibly at work. You know what, we need to take note of compassion. We need to examine our lives every day to see how we're motivated in helping others. Are you moved by compassion like Jesus or do you do it begrudgingly and out of a sense of obligation? I don't ever see Jesus doing anything out of a sense of obligation. I see him moved with compassion. Even in the garden when he wanted another way. He was moved with compassion for our eternal condition. So as much as I love the compassion of Jesus, that's not the reason for the miracles. You see, after all, Jesus didn't quiet every storm. 
Jesus didn't cast out every demon. He didn't heal every disease. He didn't raise all the dead. As a matter of fact, the storms came back. The demons continued to plague the lives of people. Disease continues even to today. And the people that Jesus did raise from the dead, the three miracles of his ministry, they all died again. You see, the reason for this day of miracles was to demonstrate that Jesus is indeed strong enough Strong enough to handle anything that comes along in this life. Can you find anyone else with such power? He has no equal. I will not. I cannot follow someone whose grave is a place of pilgrimage. If he or she doesn't have the power to conquer death, they're not strong enough to get me through life. But the risen Christ, he stands alone. And he's strong enough. Something else in this passage shouts to me. Jesus knows all of the possibilities. He owns all the options. We, we are so short-sighted. I, I am so narrow-sighted. Every color on the artist's palette comes from just three colors. Red, yellow, blue. But mixed in hundreds of different ways, they create hundreds of different shades and create the most beautiful pictures known to humanity. Every stirring symphony, every pop culture tune, every country music tragedy involving the loss of a dog, truck, shotgun, and girlfriend uses the same 12 notes of the chromatic scale. They all sound different, but they're all moving pieces of music, and they all come from 12 simple notes, but all the options. Everything on this globe, including us, is comprised of just 118 known chemical elements, and yet look at all of the possibilities. Our grandkids love playing with Legos. Do you know the possibilities with Legos? Just six Legos I'm talking about just the standard, regular, eight-studded Lego. I think we may have a picture of that Lego here. Just, just one of those. The possibility of six of them. Do you realize that the possibilities are more than 915 million different ways those six eight-studded Legos can be combined? 915 million plus. Now, folks, when I'm in a crisis, I see only one possibility. When I pray, I pray for the only option that I can see. But the Lord sees millions of possible answers, and out of that chooses the best. Probably not the one I'm asking for, because it's probably not the best one. And his answer may not make sense to me here, and that's okay. I need to let God be God, and maybe someday. He'll show me all the possibilities and say, this is why I answered this way. For now, I just need to be confident that he is strong enough to handle whatever comes my way and that the possibilities I can't see are all owned by him.
Something else these stories have in common is faith. The levels of faith are all over the map, but they each have faith, and in that faith, turned to Jesus. And I'm so glad that not every story in the New Testament is about someone with gargantuan faith, folks, because someday my faith is strong, some days it's weak, but I will be forever grateful that the power of God does not waver based on my faith, but that my faith finds stability in the unwavering power of God. When I am at my weakest, Jesus is strong enough. One last thought, one that we dare not miss. The man whose life had been invaded by the forces of evil fell at the feet of Jesus. The woman whose social standing and life's savings had been ravaged by hideous disease fell at the feet of Jesus. The father whose heart was breaking as his daughter's life ebbed away fell at the feet of of Jesus. In each story, everyone surrendered to the strong man because only he could change their tomorrows. By the way, when's the last time you fell at the feet of Jesus? I'm telling you, we have no place else to turn. We have no one else who can lead with strength in every situation. Is Jesus capable and willing to handle the stresses and anxieties and the problems of your life? Without a doubt. He's strong enough and then some. All you have to do is fall at his feet in surrender. Some of you need to do that. And I'm telling you, you'll never be sorry when you do.